service. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Andres Escobar are insane. He partied at the ranch of a notorious Colombian drug kingpin. He played in a controversial soccer match behind prison walls to an audience of armed guards. He made himself a target when he scored a dreaded own goal during the World Cup. His life ended at the age of 27 with six gunshots in a nightclub parking lot in Medellin, a murder that shocked the world of soccer to its core. And Andres Escobar, was at the center of some of the greatest moments in sports history. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called None More Blue MK2. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights from ESPN to a broadcast of the 1994 FIFA World Cup between Colombia and the United States. And why would I play you that specific slice of footy faux pas cheese, could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest moments in sports on June 22, 1994. And that was the day that Andres Escobar's fate was sealed in one of the most stunning and dangerous soccer games you could imagine. On this episode, drug kingpins, prison soccer, own goals, murder, and Andres Escobar. I'm Jake Brennan. And this is Badlands, Season 6, Sportsland. Nineteen ninety-one, Medellin, Colombia. La Catedral overlooked the city of Eternal Spring from high on a mountain. Surrounded by fog and ringed with barbed wire, La Catedral was notorious. Not because it was a prison, because it housed one of the world's most notorious drug lords, Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar was so powerful that when he was finally brought to justice for running a cartel that supplied the United States with 80% of its cocaine, he did it on his own terms. He negotiated his surrender to Colombian authorities. Then he negotiated how he'd serve out his sentence. A cathedral was built to his specifications. It had a sauna, a jacuzzi, a pool with a waterfall, an industrial kitchen, billiards room, multiple bars with big screen TVs. Escobar handpicked the guards who watched over him, or rather, who protected him. He welcomed hundreds of visitors, including infamous criminals, and he continued to run the day-to-day -day operations of his criminal empire from lockup, including 
ordering the murders of his foes. The place was designed more to keep Escobar's enemies out than it was to keep him in. But mostly the place was designed to keep Pablo Escobar entertained. Hence the regulation-sized soccer field that was a prominent feature of the prison. Pablo wasn't just a spectator. They let him play out on the pitch, alongside the star players from the Columbia team he had invited that day, like Andres Escobar, who was no relation to the drug kingpin. They called Andres the gentleman of the field, and it was easy to see why. He played clean, he played with poise, and he played with finesse. Didn't matter if he was playing in an official stadium or behind bars. Here he cut and moved on the prison field, working up a sweat, stopping opposing forwards as always. But he was also moving with a little extra caution in this game. The armed guards were everywhere, and they were reminders that you weren't playing on just any field. The rules here were a little different. And be careful who you slide tackle. Coming in studs up against the wrong guy might result in severe repercussions. Because just like he controlled the inner workings of La Catedral, Pablo Escobar controlled the game. In the 1980s, Colombia was rightly famous for its drug trade, especially cocaine. Trafficking came with violence and death, and it also came with a shitload of money. But there was a problem. All that money was dirty. If you were going to pull in millions of dirty dollars, you had to find a way to clean it. One very good solution, it turned out, was to launder the money through soccer clubs. And there were all kinds of ways to hide and lie about money if you ran a soccer club. Half a dozen or more teams had serious ties to drug cartels. Kingpins could always find ways to work the system and launder their cash. Unquestionably, Pablo Escobar was the undisputed heavyweight of these drug lords. In time, he amassed tens of billions of dollars, becoming one of the richest and most powerful men on the planet. A good chunk of all this money went into his own club, called Atletico Nacional. He could afford to train and keep the best players in the country. He also acted like a narco-terrorist Robin Hood, building soccer fields and even homes for the Colombian people. He was building a culture. And he wasn't the only one. The Cali Cartel, for example, ran a ton of their money through a Colombian soccer club as well. The high salaries kept players in their home country, as did the improved facilities and the money pouring into impoverished neighborhoods. Well before sports washing became a popular term, using sports to clean up your countries or institutions tarnished reputation. The drug lords were building their reputations on signing all-world midfielders and building local parks. Thanks to cocaine, Colombian soccer had never been better. It wasn't just about the game, though. Pride was on the line. Pride in one's team and in one's region. These drug lords weren't friendly businessmen enjoying the sporting life, and they'd be glad to see each other dead. Barring that, they loved to see their favorite teams defeat their rivals. And kingpins loved to brag about having all-star players over to their fancy homes for dinner. In 1989, referee Alvaro Ortega disallowed a goal that would have changed the outcome of the match in favor of Pablo Escobar's team. Later that night, Ortega was walking outside his hotel room, and suddenly, he heard footsteps approaching him quickly from behind. And before he could turn around, he felt the barrel of a pistol press against the back of his head. Then the assassins who shot Ortega dead in the street allegedly did so at the order of Pablo Escobar. Soccer was already more than just a game. Soccer was in far too deep with the underworld to be just a game. As the Colombian soccer era peaked, 
the tide began to turn against Escobar, even though he was single-handedly turning his country into the most murderous place on the planet. He leaned into his Robin Hood image. He tried to increase his power through the government by becoming a politician. And that didn't quite work out the way he wanted. The cartels, especially the Cali, allied against them. They worked with the Colombian National Police, and they worked with the U.S. Special Forces. They all had one collective goal, getting rid of Pablo Escobar. The government was at war with him. Multiple factions were closing in on him. Pablo did the smart thing. He negotiated a surrender, and he did so in a way that couldn't have been more favorable to himself. Life at La Catedral, a.k.a. Hotel Escobar, a.k.a. Club Medellin, was posh as fuck. On the inside, Pablo Escobar feasted on gourmet meals, often in the company of beauty queens, but also in the company of prostitutes and criminals. Colombian national goalkeeper, Rene Henquita, was a regular visitor, which created quite a scandal, especially as the team struggled to project a reputable image to the world. And then, Pablo Escobar asked the entire Colombian national team to come up to play some soccer. Andres Escobar didn't want to go. He wasn't comfortable with the idea at all, but he wasn't really being asked to play at La Catedral. He was being told. Because when Pablo Escobar asked you to do something, you did it. This was a man who was still running a criminal empire. He was still routinely ordering hits on his enemies. If he wanted you to come to a party at his ranch, you went to a party at his ranch. If he wanted you to come play soccer in prison, you went and played soccer in prison. Pablo Escobar ran that country. At least he did until things went too far. After reports of murders within La Catedral surfaced, Colombian government decided it was time to transfer Escobar to a proper prison. But Pablo Escobar wasn't having any of that. And when the authorities showed up to take him into custody, he was gone, vanished after serving a little more than a year of his five-year sentence. It's pretty easy to escape a prison that you built for yourself. A nationwide manhunt commenced. A task force was assembled, and they looked everywhere for Escobar. He hid easily in a city of over two million. And 16 months later, in December of 1993, the task force intercepted a phone call coming from a Medellin barrio called Los Olivos. And they knew the voice of the man on the line. And when the Colombian National Police traced the call and showed up, locked and loaded, Pablo Escobar grabbed his bodyguard and made his way to the roof. He scrambled across the skyline, jumped from rooftop to rooftop. Armed cops followed in swift pursuit, and gunshots rang out. Escobar didn't make it far, and he was shot down by the national police who had been aided by the U.S. government, and probably Los Pepes, the cartel alliance of Pablo's enemies who united to take him out in a virtual war. And that final gunshot to the ear of Pablo Escobar, that shot remains a mystery. Was he actually shot as he tried to escape? Or was he finished execution style? Or did the man who once said, I would rather have a grave in Colombia than a jail cell in the US, take his own life before the cops could get their hands on him? It didn't matter. Pablo Escobar was dead. It might not have been a great thing to have a drug lord running your country, but having him gone was even worse. Escobar's power had kept a certain order in the world, and now there was a power vacuum, and that led to anarchy. The drug cartels waged wars, and the United States waged its war on drugs, and regular street goons ran wild. The big money was still tied up in soccer, and the steady evolution of the era meant that Colombia's national team was primed to take on the world. 
hoping to prove something about its athletics and its culture on sport's biggest stage, the World Cup. Pablo Escobar may have been dead, but soccer was very much alive in Colombia. And they were assembling their greatest national team ever. And there was the goalkeeper, Rene Higuita, a breed all his own, a dramatic player with an overload of flair and a surprising ability to score. Then there was forward Faustino Aspria, a devastating attacker who would go on to find success in Italy's Serie A and the English Premier League. Midfielder Carlos Valderrama with his wild hair and creative playmaking. And then, of course, there was the gentleman, Andres Escobar, the star defender, seemingly on his way to even bigger things. And these players were just the tip of an astonishing national lineup. As the build-up to the 1994 World Cup began, the team looked unstoppable. In 26 games before the Cup, Colombia only lost once, and they only gave up two goals in the entire qualifying process. Colombia was a steamroller, knocking off opponents from Brazil to Mexico and ultimately dismantling heavyweights Argentina 5-0. The squad moved up the FIFA rankings to number 17 in the world, but they were playing even better than that. Just ask Brazil or Argentina. The mission became clear, at least to the public, win the World Cup. It was a heavy order, but as the tournament approached, there was a feeling that this team could actually do it. They might not have the history of some of the favorites, but they proved they could play with anyone. The Colombian team also had a second mission, to prove that their homeland had more to offer than drugs, crime, and violence. In the early 90s, when most of the world thought about Colombia, they pictured cartel shootouts. And the average person couldn't name the president of the country, but they could name Pablo Escobar. This group of soccer players had something else in mind. They knew the Colombians weren't just drug traffickers and crime lords. Combining flashy play with tactical intelligence, this team would show the largest possible audience that there was much more to their home. In the process, they would win a bunch of matches, and maybe even the whole thing, and change the way everyone else thought about them. But the very foundation of Colombia's soccer success contained the seeds of its undoing. If crime can bring you up, crime can take you down. It started even before qualifying. Keeper Higuita, known as El Loco, or the Madman, famed for his crazy scorpion kick, went to prison. Officially, he was jailed for benefiting from a kidnapping. He was the liaison between Pablo Escobar and another drug lord. He delivered ransom money for the drug lord's daughter and was paid for his service, an act he claimed he didn't know was a crime. He was just a soccer player in Colombia. Who knew where the line was? Higuita believes he was nabbed just in case he had information on Pablo Escobar's operation. The law didn't care about the kidnapping, but it was an excuse to bring him in. He served seven months in prison and not at Hotel Escobar. Out of shape and out of practice after doing his time, Higuita wasn't prepared to play in the World Cup. Colombian crime had removed one of the team's best players before they even got the games underway, and it wouldn't be the last time. Perhaps the club was rattled by the shakeup, or maybe their keeper was irreplaceable, but the cup opened in shocking fashion. Colombia lost 3-1 to Romania. Rumors began to spread. People said the team was cursed. A witch doctor predicted an injury for the midfielder, throwing him off his game. 
Then there was another rumor about defender Louis Chanto Herrera's brother. The rumor wasn't that he died in a horrible car wreck back in Bogota. He absolutely did. The rumor was that the death of Chanto's brother, which happened immediately after the team lost a match, was no accident. But the rumors were nothing compared to the death threats. Andreas and the others were watching TV in their hotel when the news came on. If midfielder Barbas Gomez was allowed to play, they would all be killed. The threats didn't make any sense on the surface. Gomez was a good player. One possibility, which has never been proved, was that certain figures were betting heavily against the national team and wanted to disrupt them. The likely reason for the threats, however, was that soccer club owners, with their own ties to crime, wanted Gomez out of the way so that their players could get time on the international stage where, if they played well, those players would become more financially valuable assets. At times, it looked like life held no value in early 90s Colombia. At other times, you could put a very simple price tag on it. Colombia's coach removed Gomez from the lineup. He wasn't about to risk anyone's life over his roster. And the crime lords had removed yet another of the squad's starters. If drug power built Colombia's soccer, it ought to get to run it too. And it wasn't just the loss of players that affected the team. How were they supposed to focus under these circumstances? They were on the road, in a foreign country, carrying the weight of their own homeland. And now they were either cursed, threatened, or grieving. These were stresses no athlete prepared for, and the team could not afford another loss. The team might not even be able to afford another draw. And they had to win. June 22nd, 1994, Pasadena, California. Andres Escobar was running down the field closer and closer to the Colombian goal. He found himself in the very spot he never wanted to be in, the center back's scariest situation, running towards his own goal, but with the ball being played in behind him. He ran harder, his legs burned. He had to make a split second decision. He could either cut the ball off as his momentum got him closer to the net or just let it pass, in which case the opposing player was likely to get a shot off. He couldn't think, he just acted, opted for the former scenario. He slid for the ball, stuck his leg out to block it, and held his breath. The United States team was playing with passion. The US wasn't known for its soccer, but the country was hosting the World Cup for the first time ever. The pressure was on to prove that the states weren't just growing the sport at home, but that they belonged on an international stage. The game started okay for the Colombians, and they couldn't score, but they were the better team. And they consistently pressured the US men for the first 30 minutes. The U.S. team played a compact style with the ability to counterattack quickly, and they won the ball at midfield and pushed it sharply up the left wing. A midfielder spotted his teammates streaking toward the goal, and he booted a sharp, low cross toward him. And now, Andres Escobar found himself in that situation, the one he feared. As he slid to block the ball, he realized that his angle wasn't quite right, and the ball deflected off his leg, passing Gita's replacement, and straight into the Colombian net. Andres stared in disbelief at what had just happened. He had scored for the U.S. team. American flags waved throughout the stadium, the dreaded own goal. One of the worst feelings you can have as an athlete. It happens to all defenders, but amazingly, it was the only time in Andres' career that it happened to him. The Colombian team tried to shake it off. They got to their feet and got on with play. And the U.S. managed to score again, and the Colombians lost 2-1. The dark horse to win it all didn't even advance out of the first round of play. 
What had begun with the brightest hope ended in utter misery. The team failed, done in by criminal elements, heavy pressure, and bad luck. The weight of this crisis, deserved or not, fell on Andres Escobar, the gentleman, the joyful, likable young star. And now, something was in the air. The minute the own goal hit the net, Escobar's nephew, watching on TV at home, turned to his mother and said, Mommy, they're going to kill Andres. Andres Escobar should never have returned to his home country. Many of his teammates stayed in the United States to wait out the drama. Everyone knew it wasn't safe to go back. It wasn't safe for a regular person, let alone someone who just made a major error on the world stage. Just look at his teammate, Chanto Herrera. Not only had his brother died under mysterious circumstances following one of the soccer club's losses, his infant son, his son, an infant, was kidnapped and held for ransom. The kid was only gone for a few hours before his captors gave up, but it still struck fear deep into the hearts of the players. With death threats and bombings business as usual in Colombia, it only made sense to spend some extra time in the United States. See the sights, disappear for a while, whatever. Just don't go to Medellin. But not Andres. He felt like he needed to go back home straight away. The longer he waited, the worse it felt. He missed his life in his home country. He had friends and family waiting to cheer him up, help him forget about his own goal, move on. He returned to Medellin and reunited with his fiance. He looked into a plan to pursue professional soccer from Milan in Italy. It seemed as if maybe, just maybe, he could put this own goal behind him. Andres kept a low profile for about a week or so, but on July 1st, 1994, he got the itch to go out on the town. Whether it was out of pride or duty, he felt like it would be good to be seen in public. He wasn't hiding from his fans and fellow countrymen like a coward. He was owning up to his own goal. He was looking for forgiveness and redemption out in the streets. His friends, his coach, his fiance, they all warned him against going out. Medellin was a dangerous place, a place where the face of the national team's failure might want to be discreet. But Andres wasn't discreet. He hit a few spots with his friends. He was young, 27 years old, and he needed to blow off some steam. It was hot. It had been a long, hot summer already, at least for someone who traveled to another continent only to suffer a devastating humiliation. A few drinks would help. Plus, anything beats staying hidden forever. Andres let the normalcy of getting drunk with friends take his mind off things. He relaxed, thought about his prospects with Milan as his crew moved from one spot to the next. Soon they wound up at the L&Dio nightclub. Here, Andres made a tactical mistake. He separated from his friends. He was alone in a city surrounded by bad people who hated him. People who felt free to do whatever they wanted. Alone in the crowd, he began to hear the taunting, and they mocked him for that fucking own goal. Andres tried to pretend it didn't bother him. They wanted to give him shit for a stupid goal, for the choices he made to put food on the table? Fine, give him shit, but he didn't have to take it. He walked out of the club and into the parking lot. He was followed, so-called fans, Fairweather fans. Andres got inside his car. He was rattled. He didn't want it to look like he was cowering. He hadn't come back home to hide in his apartment or slink around the city he tried so hard to inspire with his ability on the field. That's why he went out on the town in the first place. Fuck these haters coming at him. He had a final few thoughts for them. But these men weren't about to take any back talk. You know who you're talking to? 
they asked. Andreas may not have known who they were, but they sure as hell did. And if this little pissant thought he was still a big shot around here, he needed to be knocked down a peg. Andreas kept talking. If they were so big time, why did they come down to the pitch and try to hold their own against another team in the cup? Show us all how fucking easy it is. Andres didn't see the guy reach for his gun, but suddenly it was out. And the guy waved it in the air and then pointed it straight at Andres's face, a sitting duck inside his car. Then he pulled the trigger. Goal. 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 Six shots. The killers punctuated each one with the exclamation of goal, one for each time the Colombian TV broadcaster had shouted that word after Andres accidentally sent the ball into his own net. The killers quickly hopped into a car and sped away. The gentleman of the game was rushed to the hospital. Less than an hour later, Andres Escobar was dead. The police investigation didn't last long. Humberto Munoz confessed to the shooting and was convicted eventually serving only 11 years in prison. Munoz wasn't just anybody. He was a bodyguard for the Gallon brothers, serious drug traffickers. They funded paramilitary operations. They joined forces with Los Pepes. And together, they were the ones coming out on top of the drug wars. They were running this show. If some footballer thought he could have his own opinion, they'd beat it out of him. The ties to the Gallon brothers only muddied the waters. They served a little time in house arrest for trying to cover up the murder, but a few million dollars in well-placed bribes made sure they never faced any real consequences. But why did they need to kill Andres Escobar? Even for Colombia in 1994, assassinating a sports hero was an extreme move. Early gossip assumed that maybe Andres was connected to gambling, but the man was as clean as a pair of new Adidas cleats. Maybe others thought. The Gallon brothers or some of their associates lost big betting on the Colombian national team. That squad was supposed to go deep in the tournament and maybe even win it all. Putting down some big wages would double the fun of watching the soccer players show the world how tough Colombia really was. Turned out to be the wrong bet. And anyone who put money on the Colombians took another humbling hit when the team packed their bags for home. If Andres Escobar's own goal was a key part of the team's early exit, the logic goes, then he was deserving of whatever he got. If he got it in a nightclub parking lot at 3 a.m., then that was just as well. And that doesn't bring the lost money back, and it certainly doesn't untangle all the complications thrown at the team to start the cup. Could be national pride. Could be that these jocks were supposed to represent something about Colombia to the world, for the narco-terrorists. And they were just supposed to cover up something else about Colombia, but whatever they were to do, they got it wrong. You can't just go out and embarrass your country without consequences. That's the theory anyways. Pablo Escobar's right-hand man, Popeye, had another theory, one that reached him from behind prison walls, and one that might make the most sense. Andres Escobar simply had the nerve to talk back to the Gallon brothers. That wasn't something you just did and lived to talk about. When they saw him inside that nightclub having fun and enjoying life after the World Cup, they needed to remind him what a failure he was, to put him in his place. The Gallon brothers were part of the system that brought down Pablo Escobar that unleashed new terrors on the country, that amassed wealth and power and did whatever the fuck they wanted to do. If they wanted to mock some stupid jock or call him a puto, well, that was their right. They never thought that Andres Escobar, the gentleman, would so much as raise an eye at them. But he did. Out in the parking lot, he could have just gone home, 
could have let them have the last word while receiving just enough mercy to get away with his life. But he didn't. He had to say one more thing. One thing too many for the people who ran these streets. No one was ever going to speak to the Guillaume brothers or the representatives like that. And they would get the final word. And they got it. A final word spoken six times as six bullets emptied into Andreas Escobar's body. Goal. Own goals happen. Anyone who's ever been around soccer knows that. You play defense long enough, eventually you get caught in the wrong spot and something goes sideways. Players know this about the game. Fans know this about the game. They also know you don't give up on your heroes. In Andres Escobar's case, you can't just give up on a man who works so hard to bring hope to a nation desperate for it. You support that man, knowing his struggle and sensing his goodness. You might expect that Andres Escobar was his country's great scapegoat, taking the blame and the punishment for World Cup failure and disappointing a nation. But it doesn't really work out that way. No one was standing there counting, but it's estimated that over 120,000 people attended his funeral. 120,000 people. It's a lot of people for a funeral. The president of Colombia delivered a eulogy, the president, and after the service, Escobar's coffin was brought out to a hearse. And as the funeral procession moved through the city, those 120,000 people packed in as tight as they could along the streets, waving green and white flags while tears ran down their faces. This was the death of a national hero, a cold-blooded murder of one of Colombia's favorite sons. Fans still honor the day of his death. Eight years after the murder, Medellin put up a statue to celebrate him. The bronze Andreas stands upright, a look of determination on his face as he plays the ball. He remains a national hero. At least everyone learned from it, you might think. With drugs and power and money involved, anything can turn deadly. With Pablo Escobar dead, there was heightened chaos in the underworld. A country star player, a gentleman, a patriot, can make one bad play, say one wrong word, and get gunned down. If Colombia mourns still, decades later, surely things must have changed, right? Not so much. In the group stage of the 2018 World Cup, Colombian midfielder Carlos Sanchez picked up a red card for a handball that cost the team a game against Japan. The Colombians still won their group stage, but they lost to England in a game in which a Sanchez foul led to an England penalty conversion. Sanchez, a member of the national team for a decade, received death threats. One hate monger wrote on Twitter, if Andres Escobar was killed for scoring an own goal, then Carlos Sanchez should be murdered and his dead body pissed on. The following year, Colombia played in the Copa America, the biggest tournament in South America. The team lost in the quarterfinals on penalty kicks. The lone player to miss, William Tosillo, received, you guessed it, death threats. The threats referenced Andres Escobar, a sinister reminder of Colombian soccer's violent past. In some parts of the world, soccer's just a game. You win, you lose. Fans might vent and drink a little too much, but life goes on. But when you take a sport and mix it with big money, heavy drugs, and excessive power struggles, there's no limit to the madness. Nothing's just a game, even if life itself is just a joke. Between the 1994 World Cup and his murder, Andres Escobar wrote a newspaper column. 
these words he drafted still linger after all this time. Quote, it's been a most amazing and rare experience. We'll see each other again soon because life does not end here, unquote. And the irony stings. It's a chilling reminder that sometimes one small error can lead to murder. It doesn't matter if you're a hero, a good guy, or a gentleman. In a world built on violence, death may be closer than we want to believe, and the game may be over sooner than you think. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis.